Well, this morning I wanted to start off uh, our gathering and this message with uh, a precious photo, uh, a photo of mine. And um, you'll see two characters on your screen over here. On the right, you'll see uh, Santa Claus, um, looking very well, Santa Claus there. And then on the left-hand side, you'll see a picture of my granddad. Uh, This is my granddad, Reginald Johnson, or Reg, as uh, he was affectionately known, uh, born in Griffith in uh, 1929. Uh, He was a quiet man, a very quiet man with the occasional uh, pearls that uh, he would share. Uh, One of uh, Reg's favorite pearls would be in response to a question, a pause, and a Oh, yeah? Uh, A man of a few words. Uh, He loved a good joke. He would uh, tell people of times that he drove uh, a Rolls Canardly. Uh, According to uh, Grandad, Rolls down the hills, Canardly get back up. Um, That was the man that Reg was. Uh, He was a carpenter. He was a motorbike racer. He was a glider hobbyist. He was a very kind man. Uh... In the 90s, uh, he'd had a heart attack and uh, he'd had to have a triple bypass uh, surgery and more recently, he'd started to have uh, failing health. Uh, In addition, he had uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, I can remember uh, last year on Boxing Day, um, getting the call to to say that he was uh, in really in a bad way and uh, Charlotte and I got in the car and uh, we arrived uh, at his uh, bedside with my aunties all sitting around and, uh, and uh, went over to uh, see Grandad and they told me he'd, he'd actually died uh, an hour earlier. And I can remember sitting by his bedside and, and uh, <laughs> looking at my Grandad and, you know, you, you, you see him just kind of lying there and, and kind of just the life out of him. And uh, I remember uh, at his funeral uh, a few days afterwards, and uh, because my granddad was a carpenter, they made the coffin out of like hardwood timber, and it was the heaviest thing ever. But as you can see, uh, my cousins on my mum's side uh, all about the size of Jeremy White, like they're about six foot four and 100 plus kilos. And my brother and I, we look like little kids next to them. And uh, carrying that heavy coffin all the way down to, uh, to lower it on the front uh, stage uh, at Grandad's funeral. And uh, there's something so final about death, isn't there? You're, you're separated from someone in, uh, in a very permanent way. It marks in many ways the, the end of a relationship. But for Christians, death is not the end. It's a beginning. It's not the closing of a door, it's the opening of a new door. It's not the end of life, it's the start of new life. And today we're looking at the event that makes this hope possible. And so if you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, He is Risen. And really, we're going to break it down very simply by beginning by looking at the story of the passage. And my first point, 
uh, the resurrection described, and then turn to look at something of what it means. The resurrection, point two, explained. But amidst that, really, there's just one simple point that I hope we get this morning, and that is that I really want us to see the life-transforming power that is to be found in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe there's power in the resurrection. I believe there's life-transforming power in the resurrection. And that's really what I'm hoping that we'd see uh, this morning. So let's begin by looking at the passage and point one, the resurrection described. Well, as uh, you're well aware, we've arrived at the very end of Mark's gospel and Jesus was crucified, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, at around nine o'clock on Friday morning. And he died about three hours later at midday. And Dave, uh, two weeks ago, really portrayed that spectacular scene as Jesus hangs on the cross and darkness covers the land around midday and he lets out that, that, that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth trembles and shakes and the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom and the centurion cries out, surely this was the Son of God. And over the past two years, as we've journeyed through Mark, we've really gotten to know Jesus, and we've really gotten to know something of the remarkable man he was. We've seen his teaching, how he taught with authority, how he was confrontational, how he was perceptive. We've seen his power over sickness, over the lame, over the demon-possessed, over those that are ill. We've seen his power over nature, how he calms the sea and the wind, how he walks on water. We've seen his power over death, his authority we've seen also to forgive sin. And despite all his incredible power, we've seen him teaching that he must die and rise again. And we've seen him leading the procession into Jerusalem. And Jesus, in chapter 11, arrived in Jerusalem the previous Sunday, and he arrived largely unnoticed. And he repeatedly had these confrontations with the religious Elite. We've seen then that he gathered his disciples together in the Last Supper and, and taught them that they would be betrayed and taught them that, they would, that he would die and rise again. And then we saw on Good Friday in the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw him agonizing over his impending death as he was betrayed into the hands of the religious elite, following by which he had a sham trial and then was beaten and mocked and crucified. And as Jesus hangs still on the cross, we begin our passage uh, in verse 40 of chapter 15. So let's read that again, verse 40. Mark writes, Now there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women look on at Jesus hanging on the cross, but not close by. They look on from a distance. 
We don't know much about these women, just little pieces. We know Mary Magdalene was from Magdala, a fishing village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. We know from Luke's Gospel that Jesus cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdala. Mary, the mother of James, uh, otherwise known as the Younger, and Joseph, or, uh, which is the same name as Joseph. Uh, we know nothing about this Mary, but Salome, from Matthew's Gospel, we know she is the wife of Zebedee, uh, who is the mother of, and Zebedee was the father of, James and John, who had earlier come to Jesus with the request to elevate her boys. You know, could one of my boys sit on the right and, your, and, and on your left-hand side? And verse 41 tells us, even though we don't know much about these women, that many women had in fact been traveling with Jesus, ministering to him. And, and we learn from these Gospels that these women had such a, a vital part in his life and ministry. They were really precious to him. And in Mark's Gospel, it's only women who actually minister to Jesus. This was, for a rabbi, extremely countercultural. And these women stand at the cross looking on, but from a distance, because they're afraid. Let's read on, not just the women at the cross, but we see Joseph's faithful example in the following verses. It says, verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Jesus had died around midday and it's already getting late. And in Deuteronomy 21, uh, Moses forbids the body of an executed criminal getting left overnight. But the problem is Sabbath begins at dusk and during the Sabbath you can't do work and it's getting late and so these bodies need to be taken down, particularly in light of the fact that it's the Jewish festival at this time. And so we learn of this character, Joseph of Arimathea. He's in fact mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Such was the impact of this man's example. He was probably from a place called Ramathayim Zophim, otherwise known as uh, Rama in the Bible, which was about 30 kilometers uh, to the north and slightly to the west of Jerusalem. And the word he used to describe him is of someone who is publicly admired, someone who was of high standing and repute. Also, we learn he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. In Matthew's Gospel, we learn that he was rich. In John's Gospel, we learn that he was a secret disciple because he was afraid. In Luke's Gospel, we learn that he didn't consent to the Sanhedrin's decision. And Mark writes that he took courage. Why did he take courage? Well, you see, the thing is, for Joseph, he's facing being kicked out of the Sanhedrin for this. 
Or worse, being accused of sedition by Pilate, who had already been manipulated by the Sanhedrin into killing Jesus in the first place. And he shows tremendous courage and faithfulness to approach Pilate and ask for his body. You see, Joseph knows the Sabbath is coming. Um, In John's Gospel, we learn that the chief priests had requested the bodies already to be taken down. And Joseph knows that if Jesus is taken down with the other criminals, he'll be likely to be thrown into an unmarked grave with these other criminals. And he wants to give a final honor to the man who he had followed, albeit secretly, and loved. And Pilate is surprised that Jesus had already died. And so he calls the centurion, and we read in verse 45, and when he'd learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. You see, crucifixion would have often taken days, and so Pilate is really surprised. It's also possible that uh, Jesus had died so quickly due to his really savage beating. He was scourged, as we learnt before, but that's not the main point that Mark wants us to see in this gospel. Mark wants us to see that really Jesus is in control of his death. That Jesus on that cross had in fact laid down his life. He did not suffer beyond what was needed. He gave up his life when it was finished. Mark wants us to see in this gospel the Son of God in complete control on the cross. And so Pilate learns he's truly dead and he grants the body to Joseph. And we read on in the story. And it says, verse 46, And Joseph bought a a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Joseph, having been granted the body, gets quickly to work. From John, we learn that Another member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Nicodemus, actually helps him out. And being a wealthy man, in fact, he probably had a number of his servants to help him in this task. You see, that one phrase, taking him down, is a classic Mark brief description of what would have been a massive job. Uh, You see, Joseph's uh, servants likely had to help him. They had to take his disfigured body down off the cross, which would be an epic task. They had to wash it. They had to place myrrh and aloes, aloes, uh, sweet-smelling spices on it, and they had to wrap it up. And we learn from Mark that they place it in a tomb, a tomb that was cut out of the rock. Uh, Even to modern day, uh, in and around Jerusalem, you can find hundreds, if not thousands, of these tombs on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And this tomb, we learn, was uh, made for, uh, likely made for, Joseph's whole family. Uh, It was likely a very large tomb. And the reason we know that is uh, because of the description later on in the passage. The ladies enter the tomb and the angel, in fact, has to show them whereabouts in the tomb specifically uh, the body was laid. And we can speculate that 
Joseph had newly moved to Jerusalem. He was a wealthy man, and we can speculate that he'd really had this tomb built for his family, and it was likely a tomb that had many shelves inside of it. And as was the practice in Jerusalem, you would place the corpse on a shelf, and when the body had rotted down to just bones, the members of the family would gather the bones and place it in a box, a bone box. And so you could fit multiple, multiple family members inside of one of these tombs. And so they place the body inside this tomb and they roll the stone in front and seal it. And we see in the story the picture of these ladies who had been watching the cross from a distance, watching on again from a distance as the stone is rolled in front of the tomb. You see, Joseph's example here is one of incredible kindness and faithfulness. He risks his life to ensure that Jesus' body is dealt with appropriate respect. But this passage is also incredibly ironic. Because it's not one of the twelve disciples who receive his body and honor it. It's in fact members from the Sanhedrin. The body that had in the first place had him crucified is now the one that honors him. You know, this passage in many ways points to God's coming verdict. That this is the true Messiah who truly deserves to be honored by the leaders of Israel. And so we move on in our story to the women at the tomb. Why don't you uh, read with me chapter 16, verse 1. And Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It's now early hours of Sunday morning, and the women who'd been watching from a distance decide that they'd like... One last opportunity to honor Jesus. And because the Sabbath has passed, the shops are open, and they go and they buy some spices, and they head to Joseph's tomb. But it's not a very well-formed plan, because as they're on their way, they remember the massive stone, and they begin to talk to themselves, you know, what will they do in order to access the tomb? And yet it's this beautiful expression of love for Jesus. You know, imagine the anguish they'd experienced since Friday. Imagine how their hopes had been devastated. Imagine the shock and the pain and the sadness and the anger and the disappointment. But note as well that there is not a single sense of expectation of a resurrection. Jesus' promise earlier in chapter 14, verse 28, had long been forgotten. And so they arrive at the tomb in verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, inside they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
They see the stone has been moved and they're puzzled. And so they head into the tomb. And what they're expecting is really like a macabre scene. You know, Jesus' body was horribly disfigured in his crucifixion. And Middle Eastern climate, we could expect that in the heat, his body had been rotting. And instead, what we find inside the tomb is a young man sitting, clothed in what is described as a long robe. And because it's a dark tomb, the fact that suddenly they notice he's dressed in, ro- in white means that this man was radiating white out towards them. It's a spectacular scene. And what is their response? It's probably one of the greatest understatements of the entire gospel. Mark writes, and they were alarmed. <laughs> These guys were deeply shocked. They were completely thrown. They were startled. And the young man speaks, he says in verse 6, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Come and see the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The one who was crucified is raised to life, just as he told them back in chapter 14. And so the man says, go and tell the disciples. Well, how do the women respond? Do they praise God and rejoice? Read with me verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. The trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They flee. They run for their lives. They're seized by shock and trembling, and they keep quiet because they're afraid. And that is where our gospel ends. With the fearful silence of these women. But what does it mean? And that brings us to a second point this morning, the resurrection explained. You know, many years ago, as a younger man, I used to wonder about the resurrection. I thought to myself, why does it even matter that Jesus was raised from the dead? And maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering the same thing yourself. And there is so much you could say, but Really, I'm just going to give three quick points uh, by way of looking at what does this mean. And the first point that I believe Mark wants us to see that it shows us is that the resurrection shows that he's vindicated. You see, during Jesus' trials, he had been convicted as a pretend Messiah, as an insurrectionist, as a false king. Uh, About this passage, uh, Peter Bolt, the Bible scholar, says the following. He says, The human courts treated Jesus as a sinner, condemned him to death, and handed him over to the wrath of God. His resurrection, however, is a concrete event in human history that announces to the world that the human courts were wrong and that Jesus died as an innocent man. This confirms that he was the obedient son. His obedience is a crucial factor in the salvation of humanity. 
The resurrection shows us that the human courts were wrong about Jesus. The Sanhedrin's verdict was he was a blasphemer deserving death. The crowd's verdict was he was a failed Messiah, soft on Rome. Jesus died on the cross and he was buried. And the question is, would this verdict be the final one? Well, the resurrection shows God's verdict. It shows that this is his innocent and beloved son, that the centurion was right. This is the son of God, that his death, therefore, was a great place-taking death on our behalf, that on the cross, as he cried out, it is finished, that he finished the work in full that was required for us to be made right with God. That his death was a place-taking death. That he truly had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom in our place. That his death on the cross was the death that we alone deserve. And the resurrection shows us that what Jesus said was true. This is God's verdict about Jesus. He is vindicated by the resurrection. But the resurrection doesn't just mean Jesus' vindication. It means yours as well. You see, if you would be a faithful Christian in this life, it will come to you at great cost. There will be great joy, absolutely, but also cost. Faithful following Christ for you will mean loss of friendships, loss of material comforts, loss of reputation, criticism from those who don't agree with your priorities and passions. It may, for some here, even one day cost you your life. But Christ's resurrection means that he was who he said he was. And that one day he will welcome you home. That he has come to lay down his life and rise again. That he is able to forgive your sins. That one day you'll stand before his judgment seat and your obedience to him will be greatly honored. You see, the resurrection means he is vindicated. But it also means he will vindicate you. That's the first point. Secondly, the resurrection shows that the kingdom of God has come in power. It's come and it's come in power. You see, Jesus repeatedly taught that he was bringing the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus begins his ministry with saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In chapter 9, he said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In chapter 13, Jesus goes on to say, But concerning that day or hour of the coming of the kingdom of God, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And he goes on in verse 35 to say, Therefore... Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Will it be in the evening? 
That was when he was betrayed by Judas. Or at midnight. That was when he was falsely tried. Or when the rooster crows. That was when Peter denied him. Or in the morning. Literally early in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. In verse 43 in our passage then we jump forward and we see about Joseph of Arimathea. It says he was a man respected member of the council who was also himself read this looking for the kingdom of God. And so the anticipation is building. When will the kingdom of God come? Joseph is looking and it wasn't in the evening. And it wasn't at midnight. And it wasn't when the rooster crows. And then we read in chapter 16 verse 2 and it says, And very early in the morning on the first day of the week. It's the exact same wording as before. Not the evening, not the midnight, not when the rooster crows. Early in the morning. This is the final moment. This is when the kingdom of God has arrived. Christ has been raised. The kingdom of God now is here in power. And yet so often we forget. Do you realize that the resurrection proves that death is defeated? I mean, think about the events of the cross. As Jesus hung there, being crucified, his body horribly disfigured, as he breathed his last and died and hung there, a lifeless body, as he was taken down for the preparation and his body was washed and he was wrapped in cloth and he laid there cold, lifeless, disfigured, swelling in the heat, Stiff, pale. And then on the first, he begins to warm. The coloring begins to return to his face. His pulse begins to enliven as the blood begins to flow through his veins. He begins to... Breathe and he is transformed and he stands up for he is alive. You know, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. You know, first fruits are a picture of a harvest. First fruits are the first bit of a crop. They show you what's coming next. And Jesus' resurrection is a picture of what is coming. You know, do you realize that, that one day you're going to die? Do you realize that? Now, our culture is deeply afraid of death. We're obsessed with the latest diets and cancer research Exercise routines, more chocolate, less fat, more good fat, less sugar, more fiber, less alcohol, more veg, less carbs, but more complex carbs, less starch, low cow, but high GI. 
New drugs promising long, longer life, which is all good things. But if you're young, you begin to fool yourself into thinking that you will never face death. But the truth is, one day you will die. It's 100% certain. One day, just like my grandfather, you will be in the coffin. And others will carry you down the aisle. But do you realize that because of the resurrection, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, death will not be the end for you. You know, Dion Moody says it this way. I love this about what he says. He says in this quote, he says, Someday you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? He goes on to say, At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Church, do you believe that? One day you will die and your friends and family will gather to remember you. But if you trust in Christ Jesus, it will not be the end for you. The resurrection shows us not only that Jesus was vindicated, but that the kingdom of God has, has come in power. We live in the very last days. Christ is seated on the throne, and therefore we have great hope. We have amazing hope. But lastly and finally, the resurrection doesn't just show us that he was vindicated. It doesn't just show us that the kingdom of God has come in power, but the resurrection shows us that the time to proclaim the gospel is here. You know, what do we make of this sudden ending of Mark's gospel? What do we, what do we make of these women running away in silence and in fear? You see, Jesus had earlier given very clear instructions about what was to happen at the time of his resurrection. We read the following in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, uh, around the time of the transfiguration. It says, And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Until when? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. After the transfiguration, Jesus says, say nothing about me. Until when? Until I'm raised from the dead. You see, now Jesus has been raised. This is the time for speaking. And yet we read in verse 8, it says, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. What do we make of these women's example? Well, it's not the right response. It's the wrong response. Now is the time for proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is raised. But what it is from Mark is it's an invitation to you. 
The Son of Man has been vindicated. The kingdom of God has come in power. Christ has been raised. Now is the time for proclaiming the gospel. How will you respond? Silence and fear like these women? Will you run away from the empty tomb and hide? Or will you boldly proclaim his excellencies? Will you deny yourself, carry the message of the cross and follow him? Or in trembling and fear, will you flee from that empty tomb in silence? You know, our passage truly is an end that is also a beginning. And that's why I put to you that Mark alone describes his gospel as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark's account for us is the start of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning because with Christ raised and Mark finished, our time has come. What follows on from the resurrection is the disciples taking the message of the cross out to the world. It's our part now to play Well, I trust that we've seen something of the life-changing power of the resurrection up close this morning, church. That it shows us that he was vindicated and so he'll vindicate us. That it shows us that the kingdom of God has come in power and so we can have hope. And that the time to proclaim the gospel is here. Well, let's pause now and thank God for the privilege of studying the book of Mark together. Why don't you join with me and pray as the band comes up. Lord, we want to pause this morning and we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your grace. You are truly the God who speaks and you speak most clearly in and through the sending of your son Jesus. And Lord, we just want to this morning pause and thank you for the privilege of spending this past 18 months, getting to know him more. What a journey of discovery. What a journey of learning of your faithfulness. Our king of grace and of mercy. Lord, this morning as we cast our minds to your resurrection, your raising from the dead, Lord, I just pray for anyone here that is lacking in hope. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to see more clearly that because of the resurrection, we have every cause for hope. That though one day we will die and face our maker, yet again we will live glorious new bodies part of a glorious new kingdom living our lives in worship before you Lord help us to see our risen king more clearly help us to live in the good of it we pray in Jesus name Amen Church, uh, as the band moves to lead us in our final song, um, this morning has brought to our attention that uh, 
Jen uh, Bush uh, had a dream uh, last night, and it so impacted her that she she wrote it down and and brought it along this morning about uh, just a picture, a sense of a a word from God for for someone here this morning. And as I was reading through uh, the things that she'd written, I just thought it was so timely uh, for us this morning that I've asked Jen to to come on down and, and share it with us. So Jen, come on down as we move to worship our Lord. Let's stand together as we listen to this. Yeah, I feel really inadequate doing this, but hopefully God can still use me. Um, Yeah, so I had a dream during the week, and I woke up thinking about it a few times. Um, Yeah, I was in a room, and there was a person in the middle of the room in a wheelchair, um, and I knew the person, and I went over to them and asked them why they were in a wheelchair, because I hadn't seen them in one before, and through talking to them, I I actually um, learned they were in perfect physical health. And they even got up and demonstrated to me um, how they could walk down stairs unassisted. And as I talked to this person, um, it became apparent to me that the person was only using the chair when things became difficult. And the person's parents were also there. And they expressed concern that their child was relying on this wheelchair when they no way needed one. And yeah, so as I was praying about that, I believe that God wanted to talk to us as a church about fear and trust. And that, yeah, some of us or all of us have wheelchairs that we um, lean on in difficult times. And instead of continuing to walk, we sit down in our wheelchairs when things get difficult. And instead of stepping out um, with only God to support us, we run to our earthly supports that make us feel comfortable. And I just think God wants to encourage us that he can be trusted and that he can be trusted for so that we can let go of our earthly supports without fear, knowing that he is our true support and a support that can't let us down. So, And this verse just came to my mind as well. Um, Isaiah 43, fear, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. You are precious in my eyes. Father, I just ask, I thank you that you're so kind and you can be trusted. And I just ask that you would help us step out and leave all our earthly supports behind. Amen.